Hello and welcome to the second season of Genetically Speaking, the podcast for the American Society of Human Genetics, where we explore the human stories behind human genetics and genomics research. I'm your host, Chris Gunter. In our last season, we introduced you to a number of members of the American Society of Human Genetics, or ASHG, at different career stages and paths. We learned that mentoring was crucial to everyone, that careers often take twisty paths, and importantly, that this is how people get to exciting ideas and breakthroughs. In season two, we're going to focus on the stories and people behind exciting papers, primarily from the last three years. These publications were nominated by the members of our ASHG Online Programs and Professional Education Working Group. The papers include basic science, clinical findings, translational research, genetic counseling, and ideas about the social responsibility we have as scientists. We are looking forward to introducing you to some new voices and some new possibilities. Thanks for tuning in. Hello, and welcome to the second season of Genetically Speaking, the podcast for the American Society of Human Genetics, where we explore the human stories behind human genetics and genomics research. I'm your host, Chris Gunter. Today, our nominated paper is Developing a Conceptual, Reproducible, Rubric-Based Approach to Consent and Result Disclosure for Genetic Testing by Clinicians with Minimal Genetics Background. It was published in the journal Genetics and Medicine in 2019. When we invited our two guests to join us, they let us know that since then, there's been a follow-up paper in 2021 in the journal Genome Medicine titled Application of a Framework to Guide Genetic Testing Communication Across Clinical Indications. So we'll actually be talking about that one too. And with that, I'd like to welcome Miranda Hallquist of Geisinger and Kelly Ormond, who is both at Stanford University and ETH Zurich. Thank you so much for joining us today. Great to be here. Yeah, thanks I for know that these papers, thank you. I know that these papers report the effort of a large work group. So can you provide some background on how this effort was established? Yeah, I'd be happy to start with that. Um, this, these two papers were part of some work that we've been doing as part of the bigger ClinGen grant, which I'm sure most of the audience is familiar with. And just like on many of these consortia grants, there was a piece carved out to think about ethical issues and education-related issues. And so Geisinger and Stanford and UNC had all separately written their grants and had pieces. And Andy Fawcett, who was at Geisinger at the time, and I had written almost the same sort of proposal for what we might think about. So we really came together to lead this large cadre work group, which I think at the beginning had about 15 people on it. And we've kind of flexed up and down from there. But we really put together a people who were experienced as genetic counselors, as clinicians, and as bioethics experts to try to think about this topic. And both Andy and I, I think, were coming from a place where genetic counseling had been sort of hailed as the way that you achieve informed consent to do genetic testing, and both for reasons of sustainability and also because we thought that might not always be what a patient needed. We wanted to really sit down and think about what are some different ways we can do this and not just to jump in and try them like many people have been doing for years, but to really come up with a way to think as a group about what we need for patients, you know, what they need, what they want, what we as clinicians think is really important, and whether or not we could do that consistently based on the gene, the condition, or some other characteristics. So, so that was really what our task was for this work group over the past eight years. That's great. Thank you. So I think you also answered some of the next question, was, which was, what was the driving question for this research study in particular? So Miranda, anything you want to add there? 
in terms of the driving questions, I think that the work group came together, like Kelly said, and kind of theoretically discussed what do we want to be taking into account when we're thinking about informed consent and patient needs, and how can we build a framework that thinks about um, maybe sometimes not having that traditional genetic counseling approach, but having a more targeted discussion or even a brief communication um, with either genetics trained providers or non-genetics trained providers. So then our research question was, all right, we've thought about this as a big group. What do we now want to um, get feedback on related to this rubric approach of uh, what our groups come up with. And that's what we really dug into with the qualitative interviews in the first study. Um, and then we iterated on the rubrics and then used them in the second study to um, try to uh, classify um, various indications, um, both in terms of different gene or conditions, but also in terms of indications for testing, why someone would come seek genetic testing in the first place. Yeah, that's great. Thanks. So you gave us a great segue into the next thing I was going to ask you, which is about your methods. I'm getting into qualitative research myself and I'm learning many new things. And among them is that not everyone in genetics has familiarity with qualitative methods, which is a very different methodology. So if you could explain some of that, including, for example, what stuck out to me was exponential non-discriminative snowball sampling, which is a great name. So can you talk us through why you chose these methods? Yeah, I can do that. And actually, you can use that sort of a method. It's really a recruitment approach rather than a, a method like interviewing or surveys or things like that. Um, so if you imagine a snowball, the idea is as a snowball goes down the hill, it picks up more snow. And snowball sampling is the idea that, let's say I reach out to you, Chris, as an expert in one particular area, and we do a, a survey or an interview with you. And then we say, Chris, can you give us two or three names of people that you think we could tap? into for this. And then we ask them and they do the survey or the interview and then they give us some more names. And so all of that together means that we would just continue that snowballing and we would take all the names that we get from each person and continue to collect data rather than taking five names from you and just picking one, for example. Yeah, so, so there are certainly biases to doing that, but most of our early approaches have really been about getting certain experts and trying to get a cross-section of people, but focusing on the experts. So we cared less about the biases that would come from that kind of snowball sampling, whereas when Miranda talks more about the methods in her study, we were looking at a broader distribution of things um, down the line and in some of the surveys that we've done around Delphi methodology and, and really kind of checking for generalizable acceptance of what we're coming up with. So in the snowball sampling, for example, um, I would reach out to providers I worked with to say, we're interested in doing interviews with non-genetics providers to see what you all think about this um, framework. And then they might invite other providers that they worked with to come to our focus groups. And so that's how we um, kind of expanded our ability to re recruit to, to these qualitative studies. That's great. But I love that you're thinking about the qualitative methodology, Chris, because I think in ASHG, so few of the members really have an understanding of it. And, and qualitative research gets a bad rap. I think within science, because people think it's kind of soft and squishy and it's just about attitudes. And I think, you know, what Miranda and I have really learned being part of this project is that when you do it well and do it really rigorously, it's, it's quite consistent and you can have both reliability and validity to your results. 
right? And it because makes the product better because we were able to take into account what people were telling us um, and change uh, or iterate on the uh, rubric that our group developed in the first place. And I think it's a stronger uh, framework for having done the qualitative uh, approach. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and so to help people understand, so what you did was have the interviews in focus groups. And then what do you do with presumably the transcripts you get from that? Yeah. So when you get these transcripts, I mean, they're, you know, 20 pages long and verbatim, all the ums and every little thing that people say. But we sit down and, and first what we actually did was I read every interview and focus group and I just had a piece of paper and I jotted down all the concepts that were striking me from this work. And then you take that list and you try to put it together into something that is organized and makes a little bit more sense. And sometimes you'll go back and you'll look at the foundational literature that that's out there and see how that resonates. You may have a health behavior theory or a framework you're using. We didn't in this case, but, but that's another way to approach it. And then you go through and you're really looking for themes. What stands out? What is consistent? Um, and, and you try to pull it together into those concepts. And it was amazing to me, rereading our paper, that the things that stood out about the interviews and the focus groups were exactly where we landed five years later after going through two more research studies. So I think that really speaks to the, the reliability of what you get when you do this right and when you iterate over the different methods. Definitely. So was there anything else about the study? Did it go as, it expe as you expected? It sounds like five years later, you got your results, which I guess is great. But <laughs> while you were doing it, did you have any surprises? Always. Right. I mean, I think one of the things that that we thought going in was um, that the genes and the conditions would be the thing that would kind of separate out how we might do this approach. And in fact, I think at the end, we really decided it was more about the testing indication that might help us triage what what condition or what um, communication approach we were going to recommend. Miranda, what else would you say from your part of the study? Yeah, to dig into that a little bit more, I think that kind of surprised us twice over. So when we were doing the uh, qualitative interviews um, in the rubric, a development study that Kelly was leading um, and that my role was more of a kind of supportive coordination role. I uh, recruited for focus groups. I ran focus groups. I gave Kelly initial like breakdowns of what I had, what notes I had taken for that first pass at the qualitative um, analysis. And then um, out of that, we realized that indication for testing was really important to the folks that we were interviewing. They thought this was important and wasn't represented in our framework. So we added it into our framework. And then we used those rubrics to um, classify specific genes conditions. And for each gene and condition, we had four different standard indications for testing. So for example, someone might come for genetic testing because they have a personal history that's consistent with a uh, risk for a genetic condition like early onset breast cancer. Um, but somebody may come for genetic testing because they have no personal history, but a family history. So they have multiple individuals in their family who have had uh, colon cancer and endometrial cancer. And now we're thinking about Lynch syndrome. So we used those personal history of family history of known familial variant might be another reason someone comes for genetic testing um, to be uh, examples that we kind of fed into the top of our rubric 
ran through and ended up with a classification at the end. What was striking in the second time over surprise is that the indication for testing, whether you're coming because of a personal history or because you're unaffected and have a family history, that was a real driving force for what our ultimate outcome was. So whether it was you know, Lynch syndrome or hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, which on the surface seem like very different conditions with different risks, and they are, what was more important for our genetic test communication classification outcome from our rubric was whether you were personally affected or if it was a family history. So and that, just to recap, the point is that what your your um, eventual recommendations are, are trying to come up with a framework to help uh, clinicians who are not genetics clinicians, as you define it, so genetic counselors or clinical geneticists, you're trying to help them decide what framework to use to advise people who are looking for these tests. Is that right? I would say that's where we aimed to our starting research. And the more we've done this, the more I think that this is something that genetics providers could use in our clinics too. So to find ways that we uh, indications or um, testing types for uh, individuals that are referred to genetic counseling or to see a geneticist. And we say, you know, I think this could be a targeted discussion and I'm going to not do my traditional genetic counseling approach. I'm going to take my 40 minute session and I'm going to shorten it to 20 minutes for this particular indication. If the patient has lots of questions, they're really anxious, they need additional psychosocial support, whatever, uh, you can bump that back up to being a longer traditional genetic counseling. But I would love to see genetics providers use this framework for triaging our genetics consults just as much as I'd love non-genetics providers to to use the framework. Kelly, I don't know if you have anything to add to that. Yeah, so I think that's been the most fascinating thing to me about presenting this research over the years is as genetic counselors, we sort of frequently go into these sessions with a laundry list of all the things that we're going to talk about and we overwhelm our patients and we know it and we don't want to let go of that and that we're, we're hoping that this kind of modeling and having some theory behind it will help people say what do I really need to give my patients and I can give them more if they're asking for it but sort of what's that nugget that they need in order to be able to decide do I want this test or not and how can we kind of streamline things both for access purposes right but also because people just get overwhelmed if they have too much information and we don't seem to be able to make these determinations on our own so it would be nice to have some consistency and that's really what's taken us to the next couple of studies that we've been working on is trying to get to that stage and then ultimately be able to trial it and see if it works yeah, no, I think that's great. As you as you say in the introduction of both papers, that is something that the field really needs, both to 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 have consistency for genetics clinicians and then also for non-genetics clinicians, as you define them. So um, you've already, as as we mentioned at the top, followed up your first paper with a second paper that's digging into which rubric should be used for specific genes or indications. So what's the next step after that? What comes next? Well, there's two more papers that have been sitting on my desk for a year. <laughs> Because everything was slower during COVID. <laughs> on one's desk for a year at this point. Oh, it's not the worst, but they're, they're almost ready. So we we actually have done two more studies. Um, one was we took the work that Miranda has just published 
And we said, okay, well, this is all well and good that we have categorized all these conditions as being appropriate for a targeted discussion, in quotes. But what does that mean? What's a targeted discussion? And so we used a Delphi methodology where we got a whole bunch more experts. Um, we had medical geneticists, we had genetic counselors, and we had bioethics people who have published about consent. And we came up with a laundry list of 77 different things that you could potentially include in an informed consent conversation, which obviously we don't want to include all of those. But we asked them to try to prioritize them. And in the end, we went back with a couple of rounds and we came up with a list of, I don't know, maybe a dozen different things that we thought made the short list and that we had achieved some consensus around as being the things that would be necessary for a patient to be able to make an informed decision. And so that's one of the papers that we've got almost ready to submit. And then one of my graduate students at Stanford took that list and went back to these indications that we've talked so much about and created six different clinical scenarios and basically made it an application of those 12 principles that we think a patient might need to know, wrote up a scenario. And essentially we asked a yes or no question of medical geneticists and genetic counselors across North America. We had a couple hundred answer this survey. And we said, do you think this gives the patient enough to make an informed decision? And then after that, we think we're pretty close. We're still making some final tweaks given the feedback we're getting. But our hope is that we'll be able to move forward and actually do a randomized control trial and look at whether or not this works and whether or not patients and providers find it acceptable, because it really needs to be both that, that feel good about this process, right? We don't want to do it just to increase access. We really want to make sure that patients are finding this to be valuable as well. So we have to look at both aspects. So one step of looking at what patients think uh, is actually a study that we are uh, that's currently under IRB review. We're getting off the ground right now to um, get patient feedback on uh, the uh, ten or twelve points from the Delphi work that Kelly described. So uh, you heard how her grad student put it into a. Uh, framework for scenarios for genetics providers, what we've done now is build a uh, written uh, summary that someone who's having, we're, we're looking at the context of familial hypercholesterolemia. So somebody who's having FH testing, um, looking for patients to give us feedback on these written materials to say, did we include everything that they would need to feel like they had uh, information they needed for informed consent? So we're looking both at uh, expanding into uh, the randomized control trial to get some more information from providers and patients and also to do some more qualitative work to really engage patients and giving us some feedback on if we've gotten these minimum consent components right or maybe we're missing something or maybe we've overshot and they're going to tell us, you know, I don't need that, that, or that, that you guys think I need. And it sounds like those are some of the biggest challenges remaining to ultimately implementing this framework is making sure exactly as you were both saying that it works for both the providers and the potential patients. Yeah. And I think, you know, going back to your point, Chris, about non-genetics providers, if we have a list and providers are working in their specialty, I think it's going to be a little easier for them to feel like I can get my hands around these 12 things that I might need to tell a patient in order to have them, let's say, 
you know, undergo genetic testing in a in an informed manner, right, in my cardiology clinic or in my oncology clinic versus, oh my gosh, I have to do genetic counseling. That's so overwhelming. So we're hoping this will lead to being able to better educate those providers so they can feel more confident, right? I think the list will be really familiar to them. It's things like, why are we ordering this testing? What might the results tell us for your management? Um, what implications uh, would a positive result versus if we find something versus if we don't find something, what does that mean for you? Those are the kinds of things that, you know, cardiologists, oncologists, providers of, of all sorts talk about every day when they order testing for their patients. Um, so we're just trying to kind of clarify what it is and what's unique about genetics. Like this test has implications for family members, maybe isn't something they usually talk about for other tests. And I'm curious, you also mentioned the uh, obviously, the paper talks quite a bit about the psychosocial aspects for the patients as well. I'm curious if you've ever thought about measuring the psychosocial aspects for the providers, particularly the non-genetics providers. You know, Miranda, you were just saying these are tests that they may think about a lot, but they may not be in that ordering space a lot. What's going on with them? <laughs> that's a great question. You know, They're giving me the look of, that's a great question. We don't know. <laughs> That is a great question. We included non-genetics providers when we did our original interviews. And most of what they said was, it's different because I have to talk about the family implications. I don't really understand how good the genetic test is. Um, I don't know what yeah, there's this general nervousness about it, right? And again, I think we're seeing that across all of medicine around genetic testing. They feel like it's too specialized. They feel like it's different somehow. Um, and, and maybe we haven't made it easy enough for them to get comfortable with it in the past. So I think we're going to keep trying to study that. I think as part of a randomized control trial, it would make a lot of sense to talk to those providers and see how they're feeling. And certainly if we're going to be developing educational tools for these non-genetic specialists, we need to do that in an iterative way as well. Otherwise, they're not going to use them. They're not going to buy into it. Right. And it, it is a lot to ask. And I feel like I'm, I'm now going to ask you the just speculation question, the just go wild question. So it does feel like we have been talking about educational materials about genetics for a long time and, and we're still seeing barriers, et cetera. So if you could wave a magic wand, what, what do you think needs to change? What would you change and what would happen as a result to increase uptake and understanding of genetic testing? I'd of course, implement this framework that I've spent the last five years of my life uh, developing, uh, helping to develop. Uh, and um, I could imagine uh, that we would put, say, a genetic counselor in a supportive role in a practice. So embed a genetic counselor in an oncology practice. That genetic counselor can help make sure that they know new whatever new genes are available, what the new panel is to order for different indications. Then the oncologists are ordering the testing, having the consent conversations themselves. When something comes back that's a VUS or not really well understood, maybe there's a curbside consult, the oncologist goes back to the patient, continues to manage. If something comes back positive, that's when we're getting the genetic counselor involved in the case with traditional genetic counseling, really uh, working towards the um, sort of uh, height of our scope of practice. 
practice and really using the unique skill set that genetic counselors have for helping people adapt, cope, um, and uh, understand and talk to their family members about a new diagnosis in a family of a molecular uh, cause for whatever we're seeing in their family. So that's one way that I've imagined the, the framework uh, being implemented. Kelly, what would you add? What's your magic wand? Well, to me, I think the, the point you made about working at the top of our practice, right, using the skills that we have for those patients that really need it is the most important thing. Um, I am a little less set on one particular way to do it because I think every region, every practice, every doctor, every patient, they're all going to be different. So I think we're going to have 20 different ways that this can happen, but finding ways that we can really develop this partnership and help providers know what they're comfortable with, use it with the patients that they know the best. They see these patients in a long-term way. And I think that's a hugely important thing when patients are, are thinking about trust and what they want to do with genetic testing and their comfort levels, that we can work with them to kind of achieve that part of the goal and then teach them when they need to use us and how to know that that patient needs us. Um, those to me are going to be the concepts I'm going to focus the most on, but boy, operationalizing that, Chris, you're right. We've been working on that for 25 years and, and I think it's still a work in progress, right? We're getting there though. Great. I, well, I'm glad in this one podcast, we've solved everything. It's all good. <laughs> <Thank God. laughs> uh, world, one podcast exactly, at a time. That's exactly one podcast at a time. Exactly. Uh, thank you both so much for joining us. I really appreciate it. And this has been Genetically Speaking. Stay tuned for next time. Thanks, Chris. Thanks for having us.